Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 155, July of 2022. Our guest this month is Mike Sockle. Mike is a playwright, actor, storyteller, community activist, journalist, and practitioner of many other erstwhile vocations. His romantic comedy, In Danger of Falling in Love, recently went up at the Villagers Theater in Somerset, New Jersey. I figured we'd start with that relevant topic and then work our way into a scintillating and depthful interview, but we kind of ended up somewhere else. I really don't know how. I was always like the smallest kid in the bunch, and I was convinced my dad didn't want me anymore because he got me not only into hockey, but boxing. Well, I, I will I will tell you this story, real quick story, George, is um, I, I played a goalie uh, in street hockey as a kid uh, because at, when I was a kid, uh, and I grew up in Boston, and in Boston, the number one sports team was the Boston Bruins. And I was a big fan of Jerry Cheevers. And um, I learned really fast that the most important piece of equipment when you play goalie is a cup. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, there are lessons galore in that one. Yes. I, I remember my dad outfitting me when he got me all my you know, brand new hockey stuff. I was eight. And, you know, the helmet was good. This was good. The other thing was good. And he just kept looking at this thing going, this thing is just way too damn big. And I was like, and everybody else in the room was like, shut up. You're going to damage him. And I was like, I have no idea what the heck you're talking about. So, you know, but. Uh, well, you know, the other, the other sidebar is my, my dad is, was a general contractor and he built in the backyard an ice skating rink mm. um, for my mother, basically. Uh, my mother uh, it was one of these really amazing women who, you know, without any experience would suddenly dive into something. And for some crazy reason, she got involved with, I think, the local Y to teach ice skating. And she didn't know how to skate. So my dad goes out and builds an ice skating rink in the back of our yard so my mother could practice skating so that she could then teach the course. It was it was crazy. But, you know, my brothers and I, we would go on there and we'd, we'd, yeah. we'd um, you know, we'd hack around. Uh, but I never really learned how to skate backwards sufficiently enough to be, you know, a, a good enough uh, hockey player. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that my dad did was after school, he'd pick me up and bring me to the ice skating rink. So I started out with hockey, moved into speed skating, did a little figure skating. You know, it was, it was the afternoons that my dad and I got to spend together, which were really, really cool. Um, it was a big Big, big, That's great. big sports person. But you just had a production, Dangers of Falling in Love, a romantic comedy. And yeah, okay. Well, actually, the title is, uh, it was In Danger of Falling in Love. Most of us are, have been at one point there. But the premise is a little bit, yeah, a little bit weird, uh, I'm going to say. Not, not to put any negative connotation on it, but... Can you talk us through what the basic premise for this play is? Yeah, sure. So um, I read this article in Psychology Today uh, that talked about the chemistry of love. And I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, the, the idea that, you know, a lot of us think of love, in obviously, in romantic terms. You know, yeah. Cupid's up there and hits us with an arrow. Oh, we had, oh yeah, my God, there's, yes. there's the yeah. man or woman I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. So uh, what happened was uh, I read this article. And in the article, it was talking about different chemicals and different processes that occur uh, when you have that moment of attraction, 
and that moment of attraction is the the first step, of course, to falling in love, uh, falling deeply in love. We're talking. And one something. of those chemicals was called limerence. I had never heard of it. Okay. Yes, it's a chemical called limerence. It's and actually, I guess it's a real chemical. And I said to myself, you know, um, wouldn't it be cool if you set up a scenario? in which uh, these two characters are trying to generate limerence in people artificially as a way of matchmaking. And uh, that was the basis of the, of, of the play. Uh, set it in New York, um, set it in a scenario in which these two women who have been unlucky in love uh, decide we're going to get all our friends together and we're going to create these scenarios in which we're going to put ourselves in danger, be rescued, cause this limerence reaction, and see see if it works. See if there if this is a, a as one of the characters describes it, whether this is a real business model. Um, enter into this play uh, a mystery, uh, a couple that separates, uh, but the husband has no idea why the wife has left. And um, the play, in many ways, is uh, uh, trying to figure out that mystery. But at the end of the day, what the play is really exploring is how do we approach love? Um, is love really a natural thing? Or is love an artificial thing? And even more importantly, what should love be? Uh, and, you know, I, I felt... I felt very good about the production. We, we did it out here in uh, central New Jersey in Somerset, a company called the Villagers. Um, and they were, they were wonderful to work with. And it just, it's just wonderful when you see local theater uh, pick up original works and they're not afraid to run with them. Yeah, that is uh, not too common a happening uh, these days. Everybody's looking for something well-known to fill seats with, you know, get butts in seats, especially over the past couple of years because theater has been in the uh, in the crapper monetarily. So what did the audience think? I mean, what were the comments like after this? Well, we had really good audiences. Um, uh, we had six shows. Okay. And uh, we had, uh, most of them were filled. Uh, and after the show, people came back and... Uh, they liked it. Uh, they they liked the theme. They they liked the way the story was put together. Um, you know, it, as as you know, George, the challenge in writing a play sometimes is you come up with this great idea, this mm -hmm. theme you want to get across to your audience, and then you forget. Well, this is about storytelling, so you got to have a story to keep your audience engaged. Otherwise, it's yeah. just it's just a, an hour and a half of didactic dialogue. So I felt very good about the story. I felt very good uh, about the actors that we had recruited. Uh, they provided very consistent performances, which is always a challenge in community theater. And yeah. the audience bought into the, the, the basic theme of the play. It, it went very, very well. I was very pleased. Good. Good, good, good. Yeah, community theater is, uh, I love community theater. I, I, most of, a lot of my experiences have been with community theater back in uh, beautiful downtown Ithaca, New York, where we had so many independent little theater companies running around. It was a joy to get people who wanted to be actors, who weren't professionals, who 
wanted their chance to, you know, strut upon the stage and share the light and just to say somebody else's words and to be somebody else for a while. And regardless of experience or talent, I think we had overall just wonderful experiences because people loved being up there. And I think that was especially true when they had a brand new play or a play that nobody was familiar with because they could feel like they weren't redoing something that three dozen people had already re, you know, had already done years before. Yeah, I mean there there's there's a there's a it's a wonderful situation when you can invent a character. Yeah. And and that's what an original play allows you to do. The other thing that I would say is if you're within about a hundred miles of New York City, mm -hmm. uh, I think you have a different uh, different level of community theater. There's a lot of people out here uh, who are either hiding out from equity or they they're very well trained. They've they've they may not be professional actors, but they've they've taken classes. They yeah. take it very seriously. Uh, they're very good. And uh, so I found that the community theater in New Jersey, and I have a suspicion it's very similar in the New York City area and, and Connecticut as well, uh, is very, very good. Uh, that, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, you know, we had Cornell, we had Ithaca College, both of which uh, are remarkable theater schools. But we also had some folks who were, as long as the subject was brought up, equity refugees who said, yeah, please credit me as such and such else. And we're like, yeah, no problem. We can make this happen. Um, how long have you been doing this? It's because it, I, I looked this up and it's, is it only eight years you've been writing plays or eight, nine years now? Yeah, I, I, I started writing plays um, at the tail end of uh, 2014. What, what happened was, uh, as in life, everything is serendipitous. Oh, sure, uh, yeah. For the first time in almost 30 years, I decided, hey, I'm going to trial for a play. So uh, this theater group in uh, my town, Homedale, New Jersey, was doing a production of A Few Good Men, which, you know, is, uh, is, a, is a misnomer because that play needs more than a few men. It means a lot of men. Yeah. And so I, I uh, auditioned, ended up playing four different roles. And while I was in the, in the process of the, the, the uh, rehearsals, et cetera, uh, one of the members of the company came up to me and said, look, you know, um, our company is going to have a... Uh, a theater festival uh, in a few months and we're looking for plays and why don't you write a play? And I said, well, I've never written a play before. And he said, well, you're a writer. You, you could probably put something together. And I said, well, all right. And I, I actually had a few things down dancing in my head anyways. I went home and um, it, it just turned out to be a very natural process. I wrote a play in four hours. Are these full lengths? Uh, no, 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 don't, oh, okay. no, no, no need for people to panic, but they were, ah! but they were 15 minute plays. I was about to quit the business. <laughs> no, no, there were, but I, I have written full length plays in about six weeks. Uh, it's a, it's uh, seems, and by the way, I think it's really important to point out that you can write the play in six weeks, but you could be editing that play for four years. Oh my um, gosh, in yeah. Danger of Falling in Love is a good example of that. Uh, I, 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 I had the same kind of the same experience that you had. I'm sorry for interrupting, but somebody said, why don't you write a play? And I was like, I've never written one. They said, well, go ahead. And I wrote it in four no, days, no. but I've been editing it since for 30 years. That's the fun part of writing a play yeah. is that plays, they continue to have a life of their own. But shortly after I finished the, the, the second play, I said to myself, you know, I, um, I feel comfortable with this format. I, I, uh, I've been telling stories all my life, you know, 
as a journalist, uh, in corporate communications, um, working as a community activist. Uh, it's it's been something that's in my DNA. So the storytelling I felt very comfortable with, mm-hmm. and dialogue is again. I have a good ear. Um, I also I'm a speechwriter, and so I've been writing I've been writing scripts for uh, corporate leaders and and um, uh, political leaders for a long long time. So you put those two together uh, as a format. I felt very comfortable, and I have a. I have a good visual eye. I have a, a sense of how things are going to look uh, uh, on a static stage. So I uh, dived in and wrote my first full-length play, uh, which is Horseshoes, uh, which recently uh, was picked up by uh, Broadway Licensing and has worldwide rights now, uh, which is incredibly exciting and, and, and just somewhat bizarre uh, at the same time. And uh, I actually ended up writing a trilogy of, of three full-length plays involving uh, a 50-year period uh, of this uh, this family uh, based in Boston. And uh, and then the cat's out of the bag. And um, I've written about 30 plays uh, of all sorts. I, I, I have, for example, I've got this musical I wrote that a friend asked me to do, but I don't have anybody to write the music. So we, we could put that out as an appeal. Um, through your radio program. Does anybody uh, want to help Mike write someone, his music? Someone has a musical bent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it, it's been, it's been, um, you know, it's been incredible. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's been an incredible experience. And uh, I, 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 I think I've, uh, you know, people talk about, well, uh, do you make any money off of it? Well, I, I think I've saved <laughs> thousands of dollars in therapy. So uh, yeah. I, I think I think I'm e- I'm evening out. It's it's yeah. Uh, we don't we're not in this for the money. In case anybody outside the theater world is actually listening, um, but okay, all these plays in eight nine years. The thought in my head is, why didn't they come out sooner? And it's it's like the 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 dam broke open. And this tidal flood of creative writing just spilled out. I'm just, it's. I'm wondering why it was bottled up for so long. Because you say you're you're a storyteller. Yeah, you know, George, I don't think it was so much bottled up as much as the time is right. Yeah. And what I mean by the time of is right is that you get there is a thing called experience. There there is this thing called wisdom. There is this thing called maturity. And you reach a point in your life where you can see things in a different way that provides the perspective that makes what you write feel and look real. Um, So some of the things that I'm writing now, I don't know if I could have written when I was 30. Could I have written them in a technical sense? Yes. Could I have written them with the depth that I try to incorporate in everything I write? I don't know. The other thing is, you know, life intrudes, right? So there's this period in your life where you got family obligations, you got work obligations, you're building your life, you're paying your mortgage. And, you know, you may not be thinking about it. And I wasn't thinking about it. I had I had been very active in theater in up until my mid-20s. And then I said, I got to put this aside because I've got all these other responsibilities sure, in my life. I've got to focus on. Yeah. yeah. And then 
when I started to pick it up again, this was another chapter in my life that had opened up. I had I had more time. I had the ability to to say, okay, uh, I can give this the focus it requires. So I think that's what happened. I don't I don't believe that I had. You know, you you raise a really interesting question, George, because um, you could say uh, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, why did I wait so long? Why did I, you know, uh, wait until I'm like 54, 55 years old uh, to start writing plays? Why didn't I start this younger? And then I'd have maybe 100 plays, et cetera, et cetera. Life doesn't work that way. No, the right time is the right time. And for me, that was the right time glad it happened <laughs> so do i because uh, it certainly seems like you've got no shortage of created worlds inside your head seeking seeking you know seeking corporeality in in the world it's it's amazing the way we tell stories because um, we've been doing it since time immemorial that's true um in fact uh uh archaeologists say that we've been telling stories since we invented fire because um when when before fire existed we spent most of our days uh doing two things either trying to find something to eat or prevent being eaten but once we invented fire we were able to capture the night and people were hanging around around the fire and that's when people started talking about what happened during their day and then some people became very very good at telling not just what happened during the day but those mysteries like what are those lights up in the sky and uh, and uh you know gods and every and, sure. and, and we became storytellers we, we 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 became storytellers well we're constantly seeking explanations for things we don't understand so right you know, that's a large part of what storytelling is is finding a way of representing the world in words that make sense to you and hopefully they might make sense to somebody else Speaking of storytelling, you've got such a checkered career when it comes to activities. You mentioned you were a journalist. You mentioned community activism. Um, and I'm very, very interested in people who actually do community activism. Can you talk about that? I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and and the source of that is my parents. You know, okay. my, my parents, very, very active in their community, primarily through the clubs like Rotary, uh, but they're also active in in, in uh, town meeting, uh, kind of an archaic form of government in New England, where mm-hmm. everybody in the town gets together and they you know, they hash out what's called a warrant, which is the the, the basically how they're going to spend the money for the year. Uh, my dad was uh, part of a he was a trustee for uh, the local football field and and led uh, over a weekend a whole group of residents to rebuild the main building. Uh, that was the um, where they had the offices and everything like that. So my dad once said to me, um, I asked him, you know, what have you found the most satisfaction in your life? Um, and he said, you know, the the idea that I did something for someone else through community service. Uh, and and then, of course, you know, I think to be involved in politics, you do have to have a little bit of a ham in you. And what I mean by being a ham is not so much you want to be out front but that you have enough arrogance that you think that there's a reason for you to be up front, you, you, you out front, you have something to, to offer that's going to be of value. Sure. Um, I got involved uh, in the school board in town. I've been on the school board for 12 years. This will be my last year on the school board. Um, and it was a natural thing. My mother's a teacher. Um, 
my uh, my niece is a teacher. My son is studying to be a teacher. Uh, I've got multiple brothers-in-laws and sister-in-laws who have education degrees or, or were involved with education. And one of the values about being on a, on a body like this is you really get a chance to put your, your, your money where your mouth is. And for me, uh, I've been an advocate for arts throughout the entire time I've been there. And one of the real elements of satisfaction for me is that we have expanded our arts program uh, in, in, in the town. Uh, we've uh, increased the number of acting classes, we've added dance, we've expanded our music programs, we've expanded our art program. Um, when we recently went out to the community on a referendum, uh, I was a very, very big advocate that some of that money was going towards the arts. And um, that gives me a tremendous amount of satisfaction. And, and you know, the thing about, the, the thing about public services, um, I, I have a problem when people tell me there's nothing I can do. I, I they, 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 they wring their hands and say, there's nothing yeah. I can do. Uh, the politicians, you know, whatever. Hey, you know what? This is a democracy. We, we actually vote and anybody, anybody can run for public office. Yeah. So I think people need to be active. I think if you have a passion, for example, we're talking about art. If you have a passion for art, get involved. Parent sure. groups. Yeah. Uh, get involved uh, all across the board, um, and you'll, you'll be surprised what you can accomplish. It's, there's always something you can do. It, right. It, it might not be very big. It might be, you know, ten bucks to to buy some new drumsticks for you know for band practice or something. But then somebody will have those drumsticks. You, you could always make a speech at a, at a town meeting in favor of say, this is why we need arts because, you know, and then we could go on there for, oh, days on that subject. I was at a, I was at a conference that was sponsored by the Dramatist Guild. And uh, uh, a couple of the speakers were talking about they, 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 they write plays primarily for the school market. Yeah. And he was pointing out that when you think about it, you've got uh, tens of thousands of school districts in the United States. Right. And they all have an auditorium. They all have an auditorium and all of those high schools are doing one or two plays a year. They're doing a musical and they're doing a play and the musical. We already know it's going to be Oklahoma, um, but the play could be anything. Okay. Yeah. And this guy had, had pointed out that he is, he has had more productions than Neil Simon and it makes sense. So, you know, it, it really starts with, if you've got uh, a play that's that's being performed by kids uh, at the high school or the middle school, attend it, buy a ticket. If you've got a concert, go to it. Um, and it's, you know, New Jersey, at least in New Jersey, I'm sure it's in other states too, it's a lot of competition too. So uh, some of these plays then go into competitions with other schools or um, individual performers uh, compete against other individual performers in jazz or symphonics or singing or whatever um it's it's just a very very vital and vibrant uh, environment that we have here yeah and that's a very good thing to hear because it's one of those one of those things on the agenda that is always in danger 
of being outvoted or, you know, we don't, sorry, we don't have enough. We've got to get a new basketball court or we don't have enough money because education in this country is so well less than, you know, less than well funded. Um, it's practically criminal. So keeping an arts program, which I consider to be one of the most important aspects of a young person's integration into life because it teaches you to think, it teaches you to imagine, it teaches you to pretend, it teaches you to see things from separate, different ways and different perspectives, and it teaches you to take a chance and be brave. And Yeah, and, and here's, here's the irony, George. The great irony of all this is the human brain is built to absorb information visually and orally. Right. That, that's the primary way that is able to understand what's going on around it. So when you think about that, music and visual arts mm. are the most important forms of communication we have. Uh, over the last two millennia, we have been basically focusing on written word. It's just that's what's happened. But the truth of the matter is knowing how to communicate visually, knowing how to communicate through sound, those are absolutely critical skills and skills that can be argued fall under the academic umbrella of schools. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just getting it across and getting it funded and making it standard like history and math and English uh, is, is a job we're still working on. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio. This is episode number 155, July 2022. Our guest is Mike Sockle. Mike is a playwright, actor, storyteller, community activist, journalist, and so many more things. His romantic comedy, In Danger of Falling in Love, recently went up in Somerset, New Jersey. If you happen to hear any extraneous noise, this is construction work they're doing on Mike's house. So, hey. Having been a journalist, you mentioned that's a different, completely opposite to me, different form of writing than creative writing, because journalism, you need things like facts. You have to go research stuff. You have to tell things that can be verified. How does that inform your creative writing? Well, that's a really terrific question. In fact, I was thinking oh, about that. Well, um, among the many terrific questions that you've asked, George, so I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to single out one. But it's really interesting that you bring that up because I was thinking today, actually, that when it comes to reading, I, I like to read nonfiction. Uh, and if I read fiction, I like to read historical fiction. Right. And um, there's a core to everything that you create in art that has some basis of reality to it. If it doesn't, it doesn't have that anchor that can connect with an individual. Individuals need to connect to something that they can relate to because there's a a sense of reality to it. And so if you're looking for a field that helps hone the skills of reality, uh, journalism couldn't be a better, better pick. Um, but when I was uh, a journalist, uh, I always approached what I was doing from the perspective of, I have an audience. My, my goal is to communicate news to my audience, but I've got to do it in a way that's going to attract their attention. And I had to do it in a way where I had to get to the, to the, to the, 
the the, the main information quickly because you didn't have a lot of time. When you did a TV news story, you had maybe a minute and a half, minute, 45 seconds. Yeah. And you had a lot of visuals. So, uh, and radio, it's even less. So I think how journalism has, has helped inform me when it comes to creative writing is to look at the creative output and stop for a second and always look at it in saying, does this make sense? Is this the way the different characters would truly react to the situation that they've been put in? No matter how weird the situation might be, are they reacting the way they should? And that reality-based approach to creative writing has primarily been the driver for me. And I, I would say that, you know, the time that I spent as a journalist, where you look for facts, where you piece the facts together into a, a narrative that makes sense and becomes the story that's going to get the point across uh, to an audience. And by the way, can you go a little deeper? I mean, you may have a car accident as your story um, on the surface, but maybe the real story is we've got a traffic problem in this part of town that needs to be corrected and the uh, city needs to get involved with it. Getting a little deeper into the surface is another thing that, that comes out of journalism. Yeah, uh, one of the things that back in the days when I was teaching playwriting 101 for adults, I, I usually got one question over everything else was, I'm stuck, what do I do? And I usually came back with one of two answers. Do you have enough obstacles? And the second was, think about your play. Tell me about the who, what, where, why, and how. Make sure you can answer each one of those thoroughly because that is your entire premise. That is the basis for everything. And a good play is like cutting edge journalism in a sense, because you are literally cutting into the lives of maybe not real people, but people that represent real people, which is your goal. Well, I, I also had the privilege to teach at New York University uh, public relations writing. Okay. And uh, one of the things I used to tell my students all the time is uh, writing is only part of, of, the, of the overall exercise of editing probably is going to take up more of your time than writing. And, and everybody always says the same thing, which is, oh, I don't have time to edit. And I always say you have more you're going to lose more time if you don't edit than if you do edit. You know, editing actually saves you time. But the other thing I, I used to always talk to my students about was momentum. So the example I used to give is imagine you wake up uh, one morning and you find this big meteorite on your lawn and you got to get it off your lawn and you push and you push and you push. And finally, you're starting to get a little momentum to move that rock. And as you're moving the rock, it's easy to move the rock. But if you stop for any reason and then you come back to it later, it usually takes about twice as much effort to get the rock going again. Hmm. So I always try to encourage people when they write, don't worry about where you're going. Don't worry about what grandiose ending you may have come up with or you're trying to achieve. Just keep writing, 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 writing yeah. until you absolutely can't write anymore yeah. because you always have that ability after you've written to go and edit. And editing is much easier it's a much easier way of moving the rock sure. than if you got to start from the beginning all over again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've worked with people who say, Oh no, no, I can't do that because then I've got way too much stuff. 
But for me, having way too much stuff is great because I can pick and choose. And I've, I've actually put down things that I wouldn't remember later. Critical things that, you know, just spilled out onto the page, a sentence here, a word there. And it's nice to have those so I can decide whether or not to keep them. Editing for me is, I don't know if it's more fun than actual writing or not, because I can spend, like I said, I've spent 30 years editing one play, and it wasn't that bad to begin with. But like you said earlier, experience, everything changes, perspective. Yeah, there's that there's that old phrase, you have to learn to kill the little darlings. Yeah. Just, you, have, you have to do that yeah. um, sometimes. I know, I always lose my best joke, without fail. Somewhere along, somebody says it doesn't work. It's funny, but you got to take it out. And they're like, yeah. Listen, oh. feedback, I mean, feedback is a skill or what I don't mean oh. feedback itself is good. Uh, learning how to absorb feedback yes. is a tremendous skill that everybody needs to, um, uh, to learn uh, because I can listen to a whole bunch of people giving me feedback on a play. And I will see that one or two kernels that really make sense. And I'm yes. going to seize upon it and its value. Um, and, and if you go into feedback being too defensive and not accepting the idea that your perspective about your work is your perspective, mm -hmm. not necessarily someone else's perspective, and their willingness to share their perspective is not an attack on your quality right. or an attack on your talent. It's just, Here's another way to do it. I mean, nothing, nothing is more difficult for me than to give feedback to other playwrights, not because I'm not afraid to help help them and not that I'm afraid they're going to get really huffy and never want to talk to me again. But I always want to, I always have to hold back on, boy, you had this great idea. This is how I would have done it. And then it's not their play anymore. Right. So you've got to be very careful about framing your feedback mm -hmm. in the context and the confines sure. of what they themselves are trying to achieve as a playwright. It's a very tricky thing. I, I actually wrote a whole book on this subject because I became enamored with the process of workshopping. And I also ran across playwrights who are, I'm not letting anybody tell me what to write. And I was like, no, that's not how this works. Feedback has to be structured. Feedback has to be presented. The opportunity has to be presented where the answers need to be specific, narrow, and informative, okay? I mean, you could get 25 things, and like you said, only pick out the kernels of three, but those three, all right, will help you. Uh, and it's, it's tricky with feedback because so many people are just want to be, you need zombies, you got to put zombies in this because, you know, and... It's not the way it works. It's, it's, not, it's not the beneficial thing. You need to support the play. You need to support the playwright. And you need to give them perspective on what occurred to you without telling them how to rewrite. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, going back to something you'd said before about the timing of my involvement with writing plays. Yeah. Something that has always driven me as well is the idea that life has a linear quality to it meaning that you've got to continuously find new things to get yourself energized. And I feel blessed that at this time in my life, I found this new thing. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 I wonder with great curiosity, what is the next thing that's going to come down the road that keeps me moving? If you, if you don't feel like you're being productive and active and doing things, 
um, it, it to me it's worrisome. Uh, I, I I like to be busy. I, I like to be constantly thinking. I uh, I like to be active, and um, I, I feel blessed that this this came along uh, to help me uh, deal with that energy. It is a good thing to keep you thinking about the future. Um, and especially I would guess for you right now, because the past year or two, I think for you has been difficult and the next couple of years for you are going to be difficult because you were diagnosed with cancer. That's correct. And, and yeah, yeah, so that's a really interesting uh, challenge in the back of your head. I think one thing, one immediate response to my cancer diagnosis is to start focusing on writing a lot more shorter plays. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, uh, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer uh, about three years ago. Actually, uh, the scan that they took was on my birthday. Uh, what's really odd about that is I wrote a play only a few months earlier in which one of the major characters had the exact same thing happen. Uh, they had a scan on their birthday. In fact, it's, it's one of the drivers behind the play, the birthday gift. So um, I, 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 I thought that was, uh, that was pretty wild. Yeah. One of the things I kept telling people and have continued to tell people throughout this whole cancer journey is that um, you have to focus on what you can control. Um, and the things that I can control are things like, you know, what I eat, my exercise, uh, my activities, and most important of all, my attitude. And my attitude almost from the onset has been, okay, I, <laughs> I've been told I got cancer. There's nothing I could do about it. The best I can do about it is uh, trust the medicine, mm-hmm. trust my faith in God, and do my best not to let the cancer define what I'm going to do. And there have been ups and downs. And I, I, I recently mentioned to some folks that, you know, there's that talk about you have good days and bad days. It's kind of a yeah. classic stereotype. Well, really, you don't. What you really have are these days that fall in the middle. And that's the battleground days that make or break you when you have cancer. It's the days where eh, I'm not feeling super, super great, but you know what? I can plow through this and do something. And that's the secret. Um, you have a choice. I mean, you, I could, re- I could retire to my bed and it's very comfortable there. And I could just wait for the knock on the door from the grim reaper. Or I could say, I'm plowing forward. I'm going to do things. I'm going to get active. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to allow this obsession on the end game. This, uh, what's, 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 what's going to be that final date. I'm not going to focus on that. I mean, we all have a final date and I don't think most of us focus on it either. So, uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, uh, is it a bad break? Yeah, but I guess in some ways I, I finally understand what Lou Gehrig was talking about when he said he was the luckiest man on the earth. You learn to appreciate a lot of things that you may have allowed to slip past you uh, before you get, you know, say like a diagnosis like this. Yeah. And it's been filled with lots of funny things anyways. And, and there's, you know, it's, it's been like, it's been like a, a, an interesting life experience. I, and I think that's because I approach so many things as a storyteller 
that it's impossible not to see some of the real interesting kernels of storytelling taking place as, as we go through this process of uh, battling the cancer. And frankly, George, the fact that I'm here talking to you three years after diagnosis is nothing short of a miracle since most people who get pancreatic cancer do not have that, uh, that longevity. And I'm hopeful. I mean, I, you know, apparently, apparently the, the odds are five years, it's five to 10%. Right. And I say to people, well, somebody's got to be in that five to 10%. Why not me? And uh, that's as good an approach as, as, as I think anyone could take. Well, for the limited amount of time that I've known you, okay, which is less than a year, you've always come across as someone who knows what he wants, knows what he's doing, has very specific definitive ideas about the way things should progress. You're not a person who's been indecisive, indecisive uh, sitting around waiting for things to happen to them. You go out and you make things happen. And I th I'm going to say that probably the reason you have been going on for so long is because you've got this strong, willful personality that constantly looks forward. I mean, you just said you just said two minutes ago that you can actually find humorous things about this. And so many people would have so much trouble even just considering that particular possibility because, oh my God, you know, I've got cancer, but. A lot of the humor comes from the over-seriousness that, that's associated with the cancer. Everybody that you deal with in the process, in the, in the institution, in the industry, so to speak, mm -hmm. it's very, very serious business. And it should be, it is serious business, but it, it provides you with great opportunity to make fun of things and, and be contrarian. I go in to my sessions, dancing, laughing, singing, saying crazy things, showing lots of energy to strangers. I could care less. Uh, but I think the one thing that sums it up the best was I was, so I was being interviewed for a clinical trial. Mm. Lovely woman. This was a nurse, very lovely woman. Um, and she was very serious. And she had a a list of questions that would last about 20 minutes of every conceivable thing. And so she says to me, she says, now you have to understand that if you take this drug, you cannot impregnate women. And I said to her, no problem. I'll just focus on menopausal women. And it's just, <laughs> it's just so it's, it's too easy sometimes yeah. when you're dealing with it. But, um, one of the nurses on my medical team, she said something the other day, which I thought um, sums everything up uh, about the way that I've kind of approached this and, and the way my, my, my treatment has gone. She says, you never stop surprising us. And um, as long as I can keep surprising people, yeah. as long as I, and you got to push, you got to push, you got to be proactive. You got to say, uh, I, I question this, or I, uh, why can't we do this? Or you, you can't be passive. Um, hey, look, I, I guess, I guess, I guess getting a, an illness doesn't have to be cancer, any illness. It requires you to have, a, you got to find some reservoirs of strength. You got to find some, you got to find some, uh, you know, some, some pretty big gonads sometimes. Sure. And uh, I, I, I say to people, as it, it, it's, it's not an easy thing and, and I'm not belittling any of it. And I'm not saying that the way I've approached it is the way other people should approach it. Mm -hmm. But right. what I will say is 
don't just immediately give up on yourself. You know, you might surprise yourself with how strong you are. And at the same time, never give away those things you have control over where you where you have some autonomy. Yeah. Always, always treat you. You're a human being. You're always going to be a human being. Um, and you'll be a human being until they put you under the ground. And it's a shame. It's an absolute shame if you allow an illness or a misfortune or anything to distract you from doing the things you should try to do every day, which is make the most of every day and get get as much um, much value out of every minute that you're living on the earth. Yeah, that is wise and beautiful advice. And would that everybody in difficult straits could incorporate that and realize that. Mike Sockel, this has been... It's been a gift for you to be on on stage, off stage, and I am saying thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking your time to be here and talking with us. Um, we wish you all the best. We want to see more writing because I know you're going to come up with some, and I wish you strength. But it seems like you've got an overabundance of it to begin with, so that's wonderful. I'm I'm blessed. Uh, there's so many friends out there, uh, and and it comes from. Places that are unexpected. Uh, just the the other weekend or so, I was up at my college reunion, uh, just just up the road from Ithaca at Colgate University, and um, I was running into uh, some of my uh, friends who were in my class, and they were hugging me left and right, saying, "We've been following you. Uh, we're we're here for you. You're in our prayers. We're supporting you." And I often tell people, uh, yeah, I, I know, I know I'm in your prayers because God tells me that his voicemail machine is constantly backed up and he's being mad about it. So uh, cut back a little bit. Show, show, uh, let's, let's, uh, no, keep, keep, keep the, keep the prayers coming. And uh, hey, George, it's been great. It's been great knowing you over the past year. And it's so funny that you're in Costa Rica. I'm here in New Jersey. And our primary connection point is somewhere in the UK. I've never figured out where all those people are, whether in Wales, the Midlands, London. I can't figure it out. But it, that has been such a wonderful experience as well. So thank you, George. Thank you so much. Anytime, Mike. Thank you. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage Off Stage. On Stage Off Stage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes and Spotify. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or know of someone in the theater who'd make some seriously good chat, by all means, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening. And please, stay safe. Be careful, not only for yourself, but for those with whom we all share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>